morning. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Friends, the scriptures tell us that every time we gather as a local church, we come into God's presence and join that great assembly in heaven. And when we open the scriptures, as we're about to do now, we are gathering around the throne of God to hear him speak to us. Therefore, we must be careful to listen to what he has to say. God himself speaks to us from his word. So as we come again to receive his holy word, let's now bow our hearts. Let's now ask the, that the spirit will illuminate his word and help us to believe these truths and to obey them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our knees before you, acknowledging our great and desperate need for you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our gracious Redeemer, through whom we've received all the riches of his glorious inheritance. Lord, we ask now that your spirit will strengthen us in our inner man, that you'll strengthen our weary hearts so we might behold wondrous things in your word. We confess that we are weak, but that you are strong and mighty. So we ask that you might transform us into the image of your beloved son. Lord, awaken our spiritual, spiritual senses this morning. Illuminate our hearts that way we behold the riches of your grace. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to comprehend the height and the width and the length and the depth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. May you do far more abundantly than we ask or think for your glory in the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 3. Verse 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In 1977, John and Judy Collins started a run-swim competition in Hawaii. But as they had this competition, they longed for something more challenging, something that would test the strength of even the best athletes. The couple's dream was that many would enjoy swimming, biking, and running nonstop for, get, get this, 
226 kilometers, swimming, biking, and running nonstop for 226 kilometers. That's like going from Rack Evangelical Church all the way down to Abu Dhabi. Now, on February 18, 1978, amazingly, their dream became a reality. They launched, launched the first ever Hawaiian triathlon, known today as the Ironman, the Ironman Triathlon. What started out as, a, as, a, as one race has now become a phenomenon, taking, places all, taking place all over the world, including here in Dubai. It's the Ironman race here. And as the name suggests, the race is designed to test your mettle, to test your strength and endurance. Now, competitions like this reveal something about the world that we live in. We, as a society, love displays of power. When was the last time you heard about a weakest man strength competition? The world celebrates the champion, the best looking, the most wealthy, or for you kids, the master of Minecraft. How often, though, do we as Christians think like the world and love those very same things? How often do we love to trust in our own strength? We want to prove our worth, our mettle, our ability, and we love to receive the praise and adulation that comes with it for the great things that we have done. Do you know what really exposes this love for self-reliance? How little you pray. How little you pray. You are prone to trust in your own righteousness, to work out your salvation, not with fear and trembling, but by trusting in your own strength. And friends, if you do this, this is a futile endeavor. It's a futile endeavor. The Christian life is far more daunting than running 226 kilometers. Friends, we need God's almighty power, not just to raise us from the dead, but to keep us living, to keep us enduring, to keep us believing. believing. Friends, we need his strength so we might endure every obstacle and trial as we journey as exiles in this fallen world. God has designed prayer, God has designed prayer as one of those gracious means that we might rely on his gracious aid and endure to the end. This is why Paul prays for the church the way he does. We see this especially in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul knows that the only way to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to come to God in prayer. Here in our text, we'll see that Paul prays that the church might comprehend the incomprehensible, that they might know the love of Christ. They might do this so that they might endure in st the strength that God provides. So in Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21, we learn five lessons, five lessons that should inform our prayers in the Christian walk. Five lessons that should inform and strengthen our prayers as we walk by faith in Christ. Lesson number one, prayer must be motivated by reason. 
Prayer must be motivated by reason. We see this in verse 14. So look at the text. For this reason, I bow my knee before the fathers. The Apostle Paul here is moved to prayer on account of reason or certain reasons. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. We see that the truths of Scripture are what lead Paul to pray for the Ephesian church. So just think about it. This is the Apostle Paul. He does not pray on a whim. If there was anyone who could pray on a whim, it was him. This was a man who was inspired to communicate infallible texts of Scripture. And yet Paul relies on objective truth to lead him to pray. Paul leans on the work of the Spirit in the Scriptures, in the truth of God, to pray for the Ephesians. Friends, the, the mark of spirituality is not spontaneity. The mark of maturity is not spontaneity, but trusting in God's word. It is God's word that will anchor you from being tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. Scripture should inform and motivate your prayers. Scripture should inform and motivate your prayers. Now, what are these reasons that Paul begins to pray? What is leading him to pray? Well, it's natural for us to assume that Paul is referring to the previous verse. You might want to go back to verse 13 and say, it's that reason. But we need to ask, what is Paul's intent? We need to be careful readers of the text. So when you read carefully, you actually notice that Ephesians 3, verse 1 to 13, is one long rabbit trail. It's one long rabbit trail. So look back with me at verse 1. Look back with me at verse 1. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, the moment he mentions Gentiles here, Paul picks up another idea that is not related to verse 1. He goes on to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles. We know this because there's no verb attached to the main subject, Paul. He says, I, Paul, there's no verb there in verse 1. The verb's not found until verse 14 when he continues his thought. It's like he pushed pause on his main thought. Let me tell you about my ministry to the Gentiles. And then he comes back and pushes play in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees. So these truths that are motivating Paul are not found in verse 1 to 13, but they're they're found in chapter 2. They're found in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we can find two main reasons. There are two things or two truths that are motivating or leading Paul to pray. The first comes from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's that text that we looked at last week. Though you were dead in your sins, God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. Our salvation is an act of God, of his resurrection power. And God does this, as we saw last week, by uniting us to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. 
So God's power to raise us and seed us is the reason that Paul can pray for God's strength later in this prayer. The one who raises the dead is the one who will keep us alive in Christ. The second truth comes from Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 22. In particular, Paul's thinking about the mystery now revealed that the Gentiles are fellow heirs in the people of God. So look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Paul tells the church, Remember that you were at one at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So Paul can pray for this church, this church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles because of God's great work to, divide, to, to bring in, an end to the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. In Christ, he made the church one body. Now, if you read the letter, you can see that there are many difficulties that are made along ethnic lines. So just think about it, even in our own life. It's hard to find common agreement with those who are like you. There's no one more similar to you than your own family members. And what do siblings do all the time? They fight. How much more is, difficult is it to find peace, unity, with those who were once your enemies, who were once in hostility like the Jews and Gentiles were? So think about the church made up of Russians or, and Ukrainians. Think about the church made up of differing castes in India, like Brahmins and Dalits. They're not even allowed to eat from the same plate, just like the Jews and Gentiles. But God in his great power destroyed the hostility and created one new man in Christ. In Christ, beloved, you have a new identity. You have a new passport. You have a new name. You are in a new family, and you have a new father, God. Grace Church, God has done a marvelous work in you. He has raised you from the dead and united you to Christ. Friends, the, the grounds of our unity and our prayers for unity are found at the cross. Are you struggling to pray for yourself and for others in this congregation? The only way you can pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace is by regularly meditating on the truths of Scripture to meditate on the gospel. And you know what this takes? It takes time. This means that 15 minutes before you go to work or listening to the Bible on your commute will not cut it. You need to meditate on God's word and let the truth of scripture move, motivate your hearts to prayer. You need time to commune with God. That's what prayer is. It's fellowshipping with God. And boy, do we love fellowship. Maybe you're thinking, but pastor, I have no time. I'm so busy at work. Now, I know that many of you are overworked, 
but don't you still make time to do the things you love to do? Don't you make time to go watch your favorite movie like Ant-Man? You still carve out time to go enjoy a desert barbecue? Really, the issue is a matter of the heart. Friends, if you're struggling with motivation, you need to let the truths of Scripture move you to prayer. If you are struggling to pray for yourself, to pray for members in this congregation, then let God's word motivate your heart. So lesson number one, prayer must be moved by reason. Lesson number two, prayer must be marked by humility. Prayer must be marked by humility. Look again at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, as Paul approaches God in prayer, he comes in a posture of humility. This posture of kneeling before God reflects the posture of his heart. As one commentator, commentator explains, the posture of kneeling communicates humble submission and worship, and was often used in prayer of utter desperation. So you can physically need kneel in prayer without bowing your heart. This is a posture of the heart before an almighty God. He is like, like one before king, falling on his face and paying homage, saying, what is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? Paul comes to God in prayer this way because he understands the wretchedness of his sin. So if you look back a few er verses earlier, Paul recounts his ministry to the Gentiles. And as he recounts this ministry, he calls himself something amazing and spectacular. He, the Apostle Paul, calls himself the very least of all the saints. This is the Apostle Paul. He says he's the very least of all the saints. In fact, every time Paul recounts his testimony, he's quick to point out that he is the foremost of sinners. He does this because he knows his sinful state before a holy God. He knew his wretched sin that all he really deserved was God's wrath. He was a blasphemer, a murderer, a persecutor of the church. He was not worth anything but God's judgment. But God showed grace to a sinner like Paul. He was like that rotting corpse we talked about last week, worthy of the full measure of God's anger in hell. Friends, do you rightly understand the wretchedness of your sin? If you're struggling with humility, then maybe you don't rightly comprehend your sin before a holy God. So not only does Paul pray in humility because he sees his sin, his sinful state before Christ, but he also knows to whom he approaches. He knows the one who he comes to in prayer. So look again at verse 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, or literally translated Father, in heaven and on earth is named. Paul comes to the Father of all fathers. When he comes in prayer, he is coming to the Father of all heaven. This phrase, family in heaven, most likely refers to that gathering of innumerable angels around the throne. 
God is also the father of every father on earth. Now, when you name someone, you're exercising authority. You're exercising authority. Think about when Adam named the animals in the garden. Or think about, uh, think about your own name. Did you decide your own name the moment you were born? You did not name yourself. Your mom and dad exercised their God-given authority by naming you. Friends, God is the father of all fathers. He has the sole right and authority over you because he is your creator. He created you. He has rights over you. He holds you even now. He holds your breath every moment. Friends, this one that Paul approaches in prayer is the only God, the creator God who created the heavens and the earth. So we must approach him, not just as some other buddy, but with reverence and awe. Think about who we're approaching. Think about that passage that Ryan read from Isaiah 40, verse 25 to 28. Listen to how God describes himself. He says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like them, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not heard? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And it is this God that we approach in prayer. When we bow our hearts before the Lord, we are acknowledging that he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. We are submitting ourselves and bowing our wills before him. It is a confession of submission and allegiance to him. So Paul prays, coming to the Father, seeing the ugliness of his sin, what he deserves apart from Christ, and seeing the one he approaches. He beholds the glory of God. Beloved, it's a marvelous mystery of God's grace that sinners, that but dogs like you and I can boldly approach the throne of God. No one in, your, in their right mind here in Sharjah would barge into the doors and boldly approach his highness and start making requests. They're making demands. But yet in Christ, in Christ, you have access to the throne of God. You have confidence to boldly approach his throne in prayer. Friends, this is only made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our peace. Though there was hostility with God, though we deserved his judgment, God, Jesus bore God's judgment on that cross. He died on that cross, and he rose again 
so that we might enjoy his standing before the Lord. He rose again so that we might have eternal life. He ascended to the Father so that he might ever live to intercede for us. It is through Christ that we can boldly approach God in prayer. It's only if you're a Christian, only if you have this saving faith, only if you've been made alive, only if you are united to Christ, death, resurrection, and ascension, can you boldly come to God. Friends, do you approach God with reverence, awe, and humility? Does it amaze you that God would listen to you, that God would turn his ears to hear your prayers? Friends, every time you pray, you must acknowledge your sin before him. You must remember the wretchedness of your sin, but you must also trust in the finished work of Christ. You must come to God in prayer always by faith in Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in Christ that we can humble ourselves and bow our knees before the Father. Now, beloved, we, we hear in James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Maybe some of your prayers are being hindered because you're not praying this way. You're praying in sinful pride or arrogance. You're praying depending on your own strength. Or the only thing you're thinking about in prayers is spending it on your own passions. Friends, God opposes the proud. Humble yourself. Remember the gospel. Remember God's amazing grace to save a wretch like you. And come humbly before the Father through faith in Christ. Now, friends, if you are not a Christian, you need to know that God opposes you. You are proud and arrogant. You are in your sin, an enemy worthy of God's judgment. Friends, Jesus, cried, Jesus died on the cross for rebels like you. He bore God's wrath so that you might be made right with God. That's your greatest problem in this life. You know, often when we think about prayer, we think about bringing our quest. I have a need. I have a financial burden. Someone is sick, so I need to come to God. It's amazing, right? There's war. What do people start doing? They pray. But friends, this is not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is not your debt. Your greatest problem is not your sickness. Your greatest problem is not your brother or friend who keeps hurting you or mistreating you. Your greatest problem is not your boss. Your greatest problem is God. Your greatest problem is God. So repent, acknowledge your sin. God offers you a free pardon. I don't know the last time I heard a king freely pardoning a murderer, but that's exactly what God does. You deserve to be in chains forever, but God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Acknowledge your rebellion, turn from your sin, and come to God through Jesus Christ. 
you can come to God humbly through repentance and faith. So why don't you come? We would, I encourage you to come talk to us after the service. If you're not a Christian, we would love to tell you more about this gospel that we proclaim. So lesson number two, we must pray with humility. Lesson number three, we must pray for God's power. We must pray for God's power. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul here, his, one of his main requests is that God will strengthen us with power. God, Paul humbly comes before the Father and asks that God might strengthen the Ephesian church. Now, many years ago, when I was still in university, there's a time when I wanted to get stronger. So you know what I did? I started lifting weights. I know, hard to believe, right? There was a day when I lifted weights. Now, when you lift weights, you slowly and gradually increase in strength. It doesn't happen overnight. The more you lift, the more you're able to lift. Things that used to be heavy over time become easier and easier to carry. Weight that seemed impossible to lift a year ago now becomes possible because you are gaining strength. In the same way, Paul's praying that God would strengthen the Ephesian church. Not physically, but spiritually. In their inner being. That's in their hearts. Did you notice that from the text? He prays that God will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's in your inner man. He's talking about your hearts. Paul's praying that God will strengthen the hearts of these Ephesians. Friends, I wonder what ways your heart is weak and weary this morning. How are you doing spiritually? Are you weighed down by your ongoing trials? Is your soul weary from the ongoing battle with sin? Are you weary from bearing the sins of others? Are you burdened? by the bombardment of Satan's lies, the difficulties at work, unbelieving family members or friends? Are you struggling to believe the truth even now? Friends, what you need the most is to be strengthened with power in your inner being. You need to be strengthened not with your own strength or ability, but with God's power with God's power. And how does God strengthen us in our hearts with power? Well, he does this through his spirit. Did you notice that? He strengthens us through his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God's power comes to you. So if you are in Christ, the spirit is the one who supplies you strength. He is like that power cord that connects you to the life source. But he's so much more than that. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. 
and he dwells within you. God himself supplies the strength, the power you need to believe, to endure, to grow. Friends, we must ask that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit. Now, this prayer is not aimless. It has a certain purpose or certain goal in mind. There's an end goal to this prayer. Just like I talked about we work out to grow, and we gradually grow in strength and ability. Well, so it is spiritually. We're praying for gradual, progressive sanctification. Praying that God would strengthen us day by day by day that he might daily expose our sin and help us to believe, to put off the old man and put on the new. He's praying with this certain goal in mind. We see it at the end of verse 16. So look again at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that, that's the purpose, that's the goal, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays that God will strengthen your hearts with the end goal that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we need to just step back for a moment and think about what is, what is Paul saying. So we know from other scriptures that is the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. So think about what Jesus says in John 14, verse 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here, Jesus is talking about the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about after he ascended on high, he would pour out the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. He's called the helper, and he dwells within us. But this text says that Jesus dwells within us. So which one is it, Paul? Is it the Spirit, or is it Christ? Well, clearly it's both. Clearly it's both. Jesus Christ takes up residence in your hearts, Through the Spirit. Jesus takes up residency in your hearts through the gift of his Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who now dwells in us and applies all the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus accomplished in his perfect life, his obedience, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection and ascension, All of the benefits and the spiritual blessings of Christ are applied to your hearts through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. So when Paul prays that Christ may dwell within us, he's asking that the indwelling Holy Spirit might take all the things you read in Scripture, all the truths of Scripture, and make them alive and real in your life. He might apply all the work of Christ in you. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, I see that. But Paul prays that Christ may dwell. Like, he's not already in us. What's going on? 
is Jesus, isn't Jesus already dwelling in us through the Spirit? You just said that. But Paul is praying that Christ may dwell, that he will dwell in us. The answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah, Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in you. Christ dwells in you through the Spirit. And Paul is praying that Christ will continue to dwell in you through the Spirit. Friends, at the moment you believe, Christ makes residence in you through the gift of his Spirit. But here in Ephesians 3, Paul is praying that Christ will continue to dwell in you. He's talking about growing in conformity to the image of Christ. He's talking that the Spirit might make us like Christ, that Christ may be formed within you. So think about Galatians 4.19. Paul says in another place, my little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Till Christ is formed in you. So is Christ already in you, Christian? Yes. And we're praying that Christ would be fully formed in you. We're praying that our lives would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So think about what Paul says later. He says this in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. He's thinking about how do you apply this? What does this look like in a Christian's life? So look, look at Ephesians 4, verse 20. He says, but this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in us, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what he's talking about. Day by day by day, by faith, we put off the old self. We let scripture expose our sin. We confess our sin. We turn away from our sin. And we daily put on the mind of Christ. We daily put on the righteousness of Christ. We daily put on the holiness of Christ. And we do this all by faith. As we saw last week, this is not a work. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Paul's praying that Christ might be formed in you, Christian. He's praying for our sanctification until the day we are glorified. He's praying not just for you. He's praying for us. He's praying that we as a local church might display the glory of Christ in our obedience and our righteousness. Every time you say no to sin and yes to Christ, Christ is being formed in you. You are being like Christ. It's not, not what the, the meaning of the word Christian means. We're little Christ. We're those who live like Christ. Christ is being formed and fashioned in you every time you repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Every time you say no to sin and walk in obedience. We do this day by day by day. And we need to pray that God would daily strengthen us that we may grow into the conformity of his image. Now, did you notice who is at work 
and your sanctification, church. Did you notice who's at work? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are involved in your sanctification. Did you notice that? So in verse 14, we're coming to God, we're praying to the Father, and we're asking that God would strengthen us, that the Father would strengthen us with power. How does he do that? Through the Spirit. And what is the Spirit doing? Applying the finished work of Christ in you. The work of our triune God is intimately involved in your sanctification. He is intimately involved in your growth in righteousness. So what should we do? We should pray. We should pray not relying on our righteous deeds, but we should pray trusting in him. Your triune God is about your sanctification. Is this not the will of God? It's God's will for you to be holy, to be like Christ, so you might see and behold the glories of Christ. You can only enjoy Christ in all the riches of his majesty if you're made like him. God is doing a new work, a new creation in you through the Spirit, by the word. Friends, we should pray, trusting in our triune God to grow us and to sanctify us and to keep us. So are you feeling weary this morning? Are you wearing, are you feeling heavy trodden, heavy laden? Then turn to God in prayer. God is immeasurable in riches. You cannot exhaust his glory. Did you, did you notice that in the text? It says that we ask God that he might strengthen us according to the riches of his glory. As one scholar explains, the glory of God may be viewed as the sum total of all God's attributes. So because God is infinite and eternal, his glory is inexhaustible and provides the measure of his generosity when he bestows his gifts. Because his resources are inexhaustible, he cannot be impoverished by sharing them with his children. You can't come to God and ask him for something and him be impoverished. He is limitless in his gift of sanctification, in his glory, in his attributes, in who he is. So why don't you come to him in prayer? Why don't you come and ask that he might bestow the riches of his glory in you? He is working in you. He is able, as we'll see in a moment, to do far more than you can ask or imagine. It is God who works in you, Christian. So what areas are you struggling to endure? We had to ask you this morning, what areas are you struggling with sin? What areas are you struggling to believe? What areas do you see in one another where we're struggling to believe the gospel? Where do we see in ourselves and in this congregation those who need help? Those who are weary and downtrodden? Those who need strength? 
Beloved, pray. Pray that God will strengthen you and will strengthen us. God loves to answer these types of prayers according to his will. So we must pray for God's power. Lesson number four, we must pray for the Spirit's enlightenment. We must pray for the Spirit's enlightenment. Look again at verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, in the same manner, by faith, in the same manner we ask God to strengthen us with power by his Spirit, we also ask God to give us strength to comprehend his great love for us. You see, these two requests go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. It is the scriptures that reveal to us what it means to live like Christ. So you want to know what to pray in terms of growing in God's grace, growing in sanctification? You look to the scriptures. Knowing God's word is growing in Christ-likeness. This is God's way. He takes the truths of scripture and plants them deep in your hearts and transforms you. This is why Paul begins his second request with this condition or prerequisite, being rooted and grounded in love. Being rooted and grounded in love. You can only come to God with these requests if you're already rooted in his love. If you're already firmly planted, established in Christ. This is the language of abiding is abiding language. So listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 5 and verse 9 to 10. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you notice it's through obedience to God's word that we abide in the love of Christ. It's through knowing the scriptures, believing and obeying that we abide in Christ and bear much fruit. When you're united to Christ by faith, you are rooted and grounded in his love. You are established. He is the firm foundation. He is the rock that you live your Christian life. It is from this foundation that we can boldly bring our request to know the love of Christ. Now here in verse uh, 17 and 18, Paul really is saying the same thing in two different ways. This is a request made in two different ways, praying that we might know the love of Christ. So if you look at the, the word to comprehend in verse 17, it's parallel to the word know in verse 19, sorry, 18 and 19. 
and the, the breadth and length and height and depth in verse 18 is parallel to this, that that surpasses knowledge in verse 19. So let's think about these one at a time. First, Paul asked that the church may be strength, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, this word comprehend simply means to grasp or to understand. It's to take hold of the truth and know it. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's to know something the same way that you know your hometown or you know your favorite dish. You don't have to describe all the ingredients of your favorite dish. You know it when you see it. You know it when it's being cooked in the kitchen and you can smell it. And when you taste that dish and something is off, you know immediately. You have a full grasp of that dish. You comprehend what it's supposed to taste like. You know or understand. Now, Paul prays that the church might comprehend, not isolated or by themselves, but with all the saints. Did you notice that? with all the saints, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This comprehension is not for a special class of Christians. It's not for people like the apostles. It's not limited to pastors or seminary students. This knowledge is for everyone who trusts in Christ. Now, the word know is similar to, to comprehend, but this word know is often used to describe intimacy. It's like the intimacy between a husband and a wife, like a husband knows his wife. To know the love of Christ, Paul's saying, is communion with the Lord. It's one thing to hear, I love you, and it's entirely different to enjoy the warm embrace of a loved one. It's a knowledge that goes beyond more, mere intellect, but a real delight. It's that skip of the heartbeat when you hear the voice of your beloved. It's the deep laughter of an intimate friend. It's the comfort of your dear, dearest loved one in your deepest nights of despair. It's the faithful, loyal, steadfast love that never changes, never wavers, but is relentless in its pursuit of you. To know this type of love, to have knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, to know the love of Christ is to look into the eyes of the one who was pierced for your transgressions. It's to see the one who was crushed for your iniquities. It's to know the one upon, his, upon him was a chastisement that brought you peace. To see the wounds that scarred his back and pierced his hands and feet on that cross. To know, intimately know, the love of Christ is only known at the foot of the cross, at the foot of a bloody cross. Friends, you will never fully comprehend what it costs. God to give up his only son to die for you. You'll never fully know 
You can see it. We see the love of Christ displayed at the cross. We know the love of God because he showed it to us by sending his only son to die for us. But this type of love that Paul's talking about, the love of Christ, surpasses knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. Did you notice that in verse 19? To know this love of Christ, to know a love that surpasses knowledge. That word surpass can also be translated as immeasurable. Immeasurable. So the length, the breadth, and the length, and the height, and depth of Christ's love for his church cannot be fully measured, not at least by us. We are finite. God's love is immeasurable. God's love is limitless. God's love is never-ending. It's inexhaustible. It's unchanging. Now, it doesn't say that this love bypasses knowledge. It's not without knowledge, but it's infinitely beyond our comprehension. You will not fully comprehend the love of Christ ever. Ever. You will never fully comprehend God and his glory and this love of Christ. He, God, is eternal and you are not. So from now in eternity, we will never exhaust the riches, the height, and the length, and the depth of the love of Christ. But what's so amazing is, what does Paul pray? He knows this. He knows that the love of Christ cannot be measured. And what, but what does he pray? He prays that you will comprehend it, that you will understand it, that you will know it. Beloved, Paul's doctrine, his theology, does not prevent him from praying. He isn't saying, oh, God is unknown and mysterious. He is beyond me. So what do I do? I just read my Bible. Get about good works. No, he's like Moses. He says, show me your glory. I know you're glorious. I know I can't fully comprehend you, but show me your glory. Show me the riches of your love. You've shown it at the cross. It's there. You can see it clearly in the scriptures. Show me more and more and more. I want to see and behold your glory. I want to understand your love. I want all these glorious truths that we read about to take residence in my hearts, to help me really believe, to take hold of them, to know them, to treasure them, to be my greatest delight, to be my source of strength and endurance and hope, to be my everything, to be my all and all. Friends, you will never fully comprehend. But we can pray. We can ask God that he, through his spirit, will illuminate our hearts. We'll take these truths that we read every day, that we know about. We know. I know this congregation. You know it. Maybe some of you are struggling to believe it because you're not praying. You're not asking the Spirit to show you these 
truths, to make them real to you. Or as we sang earlier, to plant them deep into us, to plant them deep to our hearts, to take your truth and plant it deep in our souls. Friends, we have the gift of the Spirit who can show you not only the greatness of your sin, but the immeasurable riches of Christ's love. Brothers and sisters, are you struggling in your love for Christ? Are you struggling to believe these things? Are you struggling to endure? Now, this same church, Jesus had words for it years later. Listen to what Jesus said to this same church in Revelation 2, verse 3. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Go describe us. You're enduring patiently, Grace Church, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The way to repent and trust in this great love is to come to God in prayer. Ask God every day to get on your knees and ask God to take these truths and plant them deep within us. Maybe some of you are struggling to fight sin because you do not pray this way. Maybe there are members in this congregation who are barely hanging on because you are not praying this way for them. This prayer is not an individual prayer. All the yous in this passage are plural. This is a corporate prayer. It's like what we see in our pastoral prayer every Sunday. Do you pray this way, not just for yourself, but for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? When you see a brother or sister who's struggling, is your first instinct, I need to pray for them? Or is it, I need to go tell them what's wrong with them? Yes, we should confront them in their sin. Yes, we should call them in repentance. But do you do it in prayer? Do you do it praying for them, asking God to help them see the ugliness of sin, the trust in Christ? Now, we pray this way, Paul says, that or so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you, church, might be filled with all the fullness of God. See that at the end of verse 19? We pray to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, Paul is not praying that you might be like little gods. It's wrong. This is what he means when he says we're, we're, he's praying that we be filled with the fullness of God. Rather, he's talking about God's eternal purpose to form Christ in you till the day he brings it to completion. Oh, he prayed earlier what Paul said, that Christ would be formed and fashioned in you. God wants that to become complete or full. 
He wants to finish the work of sanctification in your life so that you might behold his riches and be like him. He's talking about that glorification, our path to glory in Christ. Beloved, there's a day when God will bring all that he's doing in you to completion. He will finish the work that he started. There's a day coming when there'll be no more sin, no more suffering. The day when you will be presented as a spotless bride before him. But until that day, it is here in the local church where the fullness of God's glory is put on display. God makes known the riches of his glory here. It's only here where the gospel is made visible. It's through the church, Paul says, that the manifold wisdom of God might be known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's here where people, men and women from all over the globe, can come face to face with Jesus Christ through our deeds of obedience and faith, through our weekly faithful gatherings as a church. Christ says, when we, when we gather in his name, he is here among us. And he makes known the riches of his glory through us. Finally, lesson number five, prayer must lead to worship. Prayer must lead to worship. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As we conclude, I want you to notice two things. We have a statement of faith in verse 20, and we have a declaration of praise in verse 21. Verse 20, Paul gives a declaration of faith. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Beloved, why should you pray this way? Because God is able to answer your prayers. That's how we normally answer. God is able. Is that what the text says? No. God is able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think. This is the work that God is doing. This is according and accords with the power already at work in you. That work of sanctification that God is doing, he will do far more than you can ask or imagine in you and in this church. Friends, God has already raised you from the dead. God not only is able to save you, he's able to keep you. He's able to finish the work of sanctification in your life. There's no sin struggle that God cannot help you overcome. There's no trial in your life that God cannot help you to endure. There's no difficult marriage that God cannot heal. There's no sinner too hardened that God cannot save. He is able to keep you from stumbling and will present you blameless 
but for the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Then let the glory of the Lord be your strength as you bring all your requests to God. So we pray in faith, knowing who our God is. And ultimately, our prayer should move us to worship. Our prayer should move to worship. Look again at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generate all generations forever and ever. Amen. As Paul thinks about these things, as Paul brings these marvelous requests to the Lord, he can only break out into doxology, in declaring God's glory, to declaring God's greatness. This is what this whole passage is all about. It's all about God, his glory, and his strength to keep you until the end. That's why we pray. So when you come to God in prayer, think about your God. Think about all the things he has done. Think about all the things he's done in your life. Think, think about all the things he's done in this congregation. Meditate about how he regenerated you and justified you and adopted you and is sanctifying you. Think about particular sins that God has helped you overcome. Think about all the ways that he's helped you to endure in faith. How he's helped you to be more gracious with your words and more patient with your children. Think of all the ways that God has worked in our congregation. Think of all the marriages that have been restored or sinners that have trusted in Christ. Think about all the ways that God has kept weary saints, those who are enduring trial after trial, like Albert or Nadine or Shaolin. Think about God's enduring grace in us and let that move you to worship your God in prayer. Not only think about what he has done, but think about all the glorious things God, that God will do. Not might do, will do. Friends, you do not know all the particulars of God's hidden will. You don't know everything that God has in store for you. But you guess what? You know how it ends. You know where this is all going. You know this is where this is headed. It's ending in glory. It's ending in your final victory and glorification. Paul prays that we might be glorified, that he might be glorified in the church and in Christ. Just as Christ has been glorified, he will glorify his precious bride. God will bring completion all the work and purposes that he has set out to accomplish in you and in us. So look to that future inheritance. Take your eyes off your present circumstances and turn your eyes to heaven. Turn your eyes to Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes to the day when Christ will, will that we will be when turn your eyes to the day when we will be presented to Christ as a spotless bride. All your sin will be no more. All your suffering be gone. That day when all of your requests will find their yes and amen when you behold God face to face. 
and we will worship him forever and ever throughout all generations. Beloved, God is working for you an eternal glory beyond all comparison. So let us fix our eyes upon Jesus. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings closely and run this race with endurance, not trusting in your own strength, but looking to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He will surely keep you enduring to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the great work you have done in us and the great work that you're continuing to do in us. Help us, O oh God, to endure in faith. We ask that you take all these truths and make them deep in us, plant them into our hearts and our lives. Help us, O oh God, not looking to ourselves, but looking to our risen Redeemer. In Jesus' name.